Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Kami podcast. This is Chloe Butteridge. And this podcast is designed to help you to be your calmest, happiest and most confident self. So this week I am interviewing Kimberly Wilson. She's a chartered psychologist and she has a special interest in nutrition and the impact of our diets on our mental health. And I think this is really a topic that is right up my street, having a background in nutrition myself and absolutely fascinating. And Kimberly is also a former finalist on the Great British Bake Off. So Rest assured that she's not going to tell you that you have to give up sugar in order to live a healthy life and have a healthy mind. She shares a lot of practical things that we can be doing and crucially the science behind it. And for me personally, I find knowing that something has good evidence behind it really motivating when it comes to making changes of this nature. So I want to let you know that I also have a new freebie that is available on my website at karmau.com forward slash free and it's a free anxiety busting toolkit and there you will find a guided meditation an affirmations mp3 which helps you to say some really positive things to yourself and I've had loads of emails already from people who say that this affirmation mp3 has really helped them to feel more positive to do things that they couldn't do before because they were listening to the affirmations and it gave them that extra confidence There are also loads of downloadable worksheets and info sheets that are all designed to give you those extra tools to managing your own anxiety and to being the calm person that is actually inside you that just takes a little bit of extra attention to help you to get there. So you can head over to karmau.com forward slash free and download that right away. So let's get into the interview with Kimberly. I can't wait for you to hear this. So welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, really back at work. This is the first full week back at work, and actually, it's really good to be back. I always miss it um, when I've been away, so it's really cool. That's always a good sign, isn't it? When you miss your job and you're looking forward to getting back to it. Definitely. I, I just wasn't ready for 2019 to start this year. I decided that it started on Monday, the 7th. I was not ready on January the 1st whatsoever, so no. I feel like it's just yeah, starting now. I saw someone this morning, and they, they'd been to the gym on January 1st, and I just thought, there's no need for that. It's a bit really. too keen. <laughs> Day off, relax. Stop in a second. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So can you tell us, um, for people that don't know, what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? 
Um, yeah, so I mean, it's always a difficult conversation because I feel like I have lots of hyphenation in my work, but the, the kind of foundation part is that I am a chartered counselling psychologist, so I'm qualified to work in an individual psychotherapy uh, with adults, and that's the kind of main thing that I do. Um, and I started my career working in prisons, um, so I have experience working with offending and uh, aggression and personality disorders. And then on top of that, so once I left the prison, um, on top of that, I've kind of, I've done a separate postgraduate training in nutrition where I specialized, I focused on nutrition for neurodegenerative diseases. And one of my big kind of boxes, I guess, is helping people to understand that there is the biological side of mental health and mental illness and that lifestyle factors such as nutrition and sleep and exercise have a really profound effect on their mental health and that they are really important things to consider not just kind of mental things that might be helpful there's really good robust science and I really want to get that information out to people that's fascinating to me can you why do you think it is that people don't recognize that link or dismiss that and think oh it's fine for me to go to bed really late every night and I don't know what, what do you think is the the disconnect there's, there I think there are a few things I think um one of the big ones and I always when I I, I often run some seminars about this and I always start with a, an apology on behalf of psychology because I think psychology and psychiatry played a big role in the separation of the brain and the body and we kind of looked at it kind of historically as if the only thing that mattered was the brain it was like there was just a brain in the jar and the body was just this kind of meat suit that carries you around um and so there wasn't any real i think respect or appreciation for the fact that what happens in the body affects the brain um, and it's odd because um obviously the brain is an organ <laughs> like your liver like your heart like with the rest of your body and so it depends on nutrition from your diet and the you know the quality of the biochemistry in your body which is related to hormones and exercise it, it definitely depends on the quality of your sleep for a lot of its normal processes so of course they're completely connected but we've got so kind of obsessed with the idea of the brain as a separate entity that we kind of lost connection to the body and it's really crucial role to to brain health yeah it's, it's interesting isn't it because it's it, we think of it as mind and body as these two <clears throat> separate entities as if they're not completely connected but what are the things that we do that we do to our bodies that have that negative impact on our minds or our mental health um, well, I think one of the biggest problems is that we're not really thinking about our brains at all. Um, and one of the reasons for that is simply because you can't see it, right? So your brain is locked away in your skull. Um, and so the, you know, if you go on a diet or if you do a detox, if you do a cleanse, whatever, you start a big workout regime, you can see the results. Like you can physically see the impact of all of the changes that you're making within a few weeks, you know, not immediately, but within a few weeks, and you kind of get that feedback that what I'm doing is making a difference and it has an impact and people will congratulate me for it and, and you know, all that validation that comes from the physical changes. And so with the brain, I think one of the things that there's just much less incentive, um, the changes can be kind of incremental and, you know, they take time no one else knows about it you're not really sure if you can trust it and and also 
it's not as easily measurable as say checking your cholesterol levels or measuring your waist circumference so it's it's a much more long-term thing and humans aren't great at kind of looking into the future and investing in the future we want results right now um and it's not obvious and we so which will ignoring our brains until something goes wrong so until we start feeling depressed until we're getting anxiety or much later which is one of the things i really want people to start really appreciating is until we start getting memory problems in our 50s and 60s and so on and dementia and alzheimer's disease and all the dementias are really on the rise and they're the leading cause of death in the uk now so this is a massive problem that we really need to start taking seriously i'm sure this isn't a simple maybe answer but what co- what leads to things like dementia is there clear evidence on what causes that yeah so th- there is really so <clears throat> if we think about alzheimer's disease most of uh i kind of focus on alzheimer's disease um in most of my uh degrees and so with alzheimer's disease there is a genetic component so people have a gene called the apoe4 gene which is a um a mutation of the apoe gene and that can raise your risk if you have two copies of that that raises your risk of developing alzheimer's disease or early onset alzheimer's disease which is kind of uh in your 40s and 50s but we think that that only really accounts for about two to five percent of our global cases of alzheimer's disease so much of the rest of it is what's called sporadic which is you just get it we don't know what's happened it's you know it's it's just arisen and then there's a huge group which is associated with lifestyle um and so those lifestyle factors we call them the midlife lifestyle factors there's a big world health organization study on it which said that if people took the the kind of best case scenario so if you maintained a healthy weight if you kept your blood pressure down if you kept your cholesterol within uh, healthy levels if you made sure you ate plenty of vegetables and fiber if you take regular exercise stay engaged you know take care of your hearing all of that stuff best case scenario but we could prevent about a third of global cases of alzheimer's disease so that's about 15 million cases out of about 43 million cases so there's a huge way in which this the health of our brains and our ability to kind of take care of ourselves as older adults and to you know live fulfilling lives in our older years is really related to taking care of ourselves earlier on and i think the thing with things like dementia and alzheimer's disease is that the brain changes are visible in the brain often two decades before symptoms arrive. So if you're getting symptoms in your 60s, if you're starting to forget where you put things, forgetting people's names, actually the damage is, is already visible in your 40s. And so one of my my big goals is to really try to get people to take that message on board and start putting in little habits now that will really help them protect, to protect their brain health into the future. That is so fascinating. Gosh, I think we're so often all about those quick fixes. And I saw something on Instagram today. I've eaten a piece of kale and now we wait. This kind of <laughs> um, <laughs> this kind of idea that, oh, if I, I don't know, I meditate once. I meditated once and it didn't cure my depression. So therefore I'm not going to do it. Oh, I tried eating well for a week and it didn't sort my anxiety out. Therefore I'm not going to do it. But actually it is so much about the long term and the long game. And yeah. 
Um, and I think people understood the processes. So with the meditation, for example, I think that is what happens. And you, you try it and you do it for maybe a fortnight and I don't feel any less anxious. I don't feel like I've got any more focus. I'm not getting the results that everybody's kind of talking about. But the big study on uh, meditation was an eight week, the Harvard study was eight weeks of consistent meditation, 40 minutes a day. Um, I think it was 40 minutes, I could check that. Um, so actually you're, you're having to invest two months out of the bat in order to get the changes. But actually what you did get was physical changes in the brain. There were different structures in the brain, more connections. So stuff is happening, but we're talking about tiny kind of microscopic changes over time and you have to stay fairly consistent in order to be able to get the to get the results and I think that's the thing it's, it's the consistency and the effort and I think people need to know that it it is paying off you might not be able to see it straight away but it's definitely paying off and you just need to kind of stick with it for a little bit longer okay so consistency is really key that's, that's good that's good information are there, I like some of the statistics you gave us just then. <laughs> I like that sort of thing. Is there anything around that and diet and mental health? So things like anxiety and depression, how much of an impact can it have? Or what, have you got any like nice, nice yeah. motivating sound bites for us? <laughs> so, because, so one of the big things about nutrition research is just, is often how difficult it can be to do. Um, so often you have to get people to tell you what they've eaten and you do that typically with food frequency questionnaires and you ask people how often in the last six months did you eat this and, and all of that stuff and they can be quite inaccurate because people either you forget what you've eaten like i'm not sure i could say with 100 percent accuracy what i ate yesterday you know um so you forget what you've eaten or you want to appear you know, a bit healthier to the researcher. So maybe you kind of talk down how much alcohol you've been drinking and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it can be really tricky, but one of the things, um, one of the places to start is with epidemiology, which is looking at big groups of people and looking at overall trends. And so that's been happening for a really long time. And there was lots of observational and epidemiological research saying, it looks like people who eat healthier diets get less depression. Um, and so there was a big, there's a big SUN trial, it was called the SUN trial in Spain, and it was 15,000 people followed over 10 years. And they split you into uh, five groups, the results into five groups. So uh, the people in groups uh, five had the healthiest diets and the people in group one had the least healthy diets. And they found that the people in groups two to five, so you didn't even need to have a perfect diet, but people in the groups two to five had a 30, around a 30% reduced risk of depression 10 years later than the people in group one. Um, and so there are lots of trials like that. Lots of the, um, the Whitehall study is a big study of uh, civil servants in the UK. And it found that women who had healthier diets were much less likely to have recurrent depression. Um, but the thing with observational studies is just how it's, you can never be absolutely certain about the causality. You know, maybe maybe being depressed makes you eat badly. You know, we don't really know. Um, but the, the, the big kind of landmark study for this is the SMILES trial, which was done, uh, which was published in 2017 out of Australia. And it was essentially, it was a, an RCT, so you have your control group, um, 
who don't have the intervention and you have the active arm of the group. And so they had about 36 people who were clinically depressed, who were in treatment, and half the group were given a Mediterranean-style diet plan and meetings with a nutritionist to help to improve their diets. And the other half were given befriending, which has been shown to improve separately, to improve mood. And at the end of 12 weeks, a third of the group, and you know, it's a small trial, so it was 12 people, but a third of the group in the active arm were in remission from depression. Um, And that's since been replicated by other groups. And so we think we're starting to be able to show a causal relationship between nutrition and the quality of your diet and your risk of depression. And so we're really at the beginning of that, but the fact that we've already got our first replication and that there, I think there's another one coming out, another meta-analysis, we can start to say with much more, uh, much more surely, like with much more certainty that these, there is a causal relationship between the quality of your diet and your risk of things like depression, anxiety, and dementia. And I just realised how long I've spoken No, for. that's so fascinating <laughs> to me. I love that. I could hear, I could listen to things like that all day. I'm a massive science geek, so I love it. And I hope people appreciate like, listening to this as well. Because I think knowing that there is good evidence behind something is motivating to help you to make those changes. And actually, you know, if I was depressed, I think, you know, to to know that changing my diet could help that would be the thing that could probably cause mm. you to stick to eating all that olive oil and vegetables and yeah yeah because I, you know some people say that oh you know blah 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 the, the research but I think people are kind of just sick of just being told what to do without knowing why they should do it and I think it can be helpful to say well yes I think you should eat vegetables but here is why like we can literally see the changes in your brain and I think it is more motivating for people yeah yeah and just to to for people that don't know what a Mediterranean diet is can you briefly explain that yeah so it's a peasant Mediterranean diet so in turn it's lots of beans lots of whole grains olive oil seafood small amounts of meat um because if you're thinking about a kind of peasant diet we're talking about you know not having lots of money to spend on expensive ingredients so that's why beans are such a huge feature uh lots of vegetables leafy greens um berries and small amounts of red wine um and nuts you know nuts basically every day about five ten times a week something like that okay okay so quite simple not you know something that's going to be super expensive um no. yeah and quite easy um, for people to do yeah and it doesn't have to be again it doesn't have to be mediterranean i think a lot of the research is starting to say it's just the quality of your diet if you're eating more whole foods and fewer free sugars and less saturated fat then that's really going to make the difference it seems to be and plenty of fiber but um it's more about whole foods and the quality of your diet and it doesn't have to be restricted they're not saying never have a cookie ever again in your life um but that the majority of your diet should be these kind of fiber rich polyphenol rich foods i think that's such an important point about not not thinking that just because you eat sugar one day that you've you're gonna increase your chances of i don't know depression or something but seeing your diet as a whole and don't beat yourself up about something but just the quality overall of it is really important Why is serotonin so important? Can you tell us about that? 
Um, yes. Big topic. <laughs> um, so serotonin, it plays lots of roles in the body. Like people will know it as the happy hormone. It's the, the hormone that's kind of associated with improvements in mood. Um, but that's not the only thing it does in the brain and it's not the only thing that it does in the body. So in the brain, it also helps with uh, learning and memory consolidation. Um, so taking the stuff that you've kind of seen in the day and encoding it into your brain, uh, serotonin is associated with that. It also has a role in sleep. Um, so all of that sort of stuff it does in the brain, but it also has quite a big role to play in the rest of the body. So um, one of the fun stats is that 90% of the serotonin in your body is found in and around the gut. So 10%, around 10% in the brain so, and 90% and in the gut. And most of what it does in the gut is to support motility, which is the movement of food through the gut. Um, and it's not that this serotonin can affect that serotonin, it doesn't kind of cross over, um, but it might communicate to the brain through the vagus nerve, which is part of the gut brain axis. So it might be sending messages. In fact, it probably almost certainly is sending messages to the brain about what's happening in the gut. Um, so there's this really strong connection and it's really interesting how something that's known as a brain hormone actually has these total body effects. Wow, okay, so the serotonin in the gut is sending messages up to the brain. They're communicating with each other, basically. Possibly, yeah. yeah. So it has its role in, in motility, but um, the thing about the vagus nerve, so it's this long nerve that goes from kind of the back of your skull all the way down and it connects into basically all your organs, the heart and the liver and the kidneys and blah, 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 and finishes in the gut. Um, and it's this bi-directional highway. So traffic is moving in both directions. But if you, if you imagine it as a motorway, then actually eight of the lanes are going from the gut to the brain and only two are coming down. So it tells us that there's probably quite an important, uh, it's a really important mechanism for communication from the gut to the brain. Okay, and does that, does that link into gut health then and taking care of our guts, would you say? What's the... Yeah, like massively. So one of the reasons I decided to really cross over these two things because I could just kind of quite happily sit down and just do straight psychology um but I was seeing more and more people with um IBS and it's kind of my favorite my favorite disorder but <laughs> <laughs> um, because IBS it's called a functional disorder um but the thing about and, and it means irritable bowel syndrome and it's a selection of a collection of symptoms like pain and discomfort and bloating and changing in stools. But one of the big features of it is that it's really highly, what we call comorbid with depression. So up to 80% of people who have IBS present with depression. Um, and quite often, if you get a stomach bug, quite often a little bit later down the line, you might be diagnosed with depression or have a depressive episode. So there's this kind of a long history of seeing these very similar things. And what we know about IBS is that it is a stress sensitive disorder. So stress, psychological stress is one of the diagnostic criteria. So it's this real kind of clear as day link between something's going up in the brain and it's expressing itself as depression and something's going on in the gut, which is expressing itself as all of these uncomfortable and sometimes embarrassing symptoms of IBS. Um, and so and the thing about people who have IBS is that they kind of get pushed from pillar to post. 
So they end up, you know, going to a nutritionist or a dietitian, and the dietitian will, you know, try a few things, and maybe you try FODMATs or you try something else, and, and it still doesn't give you all the results you want. Or they go and see a psychologist, and the psychologist works on the stress, but there's still maybe some nutritional stuff that needs to be sorted out. And I think it's really difficult to, to have that experience of having to keep repeating your story. Um, and so I started to really think about how important it is to assess these things together and see the whole thing as a unified disorder. That's so fascinating, the link between yeah depression and IBS. So if someone came to you with depression what would you say to them um so my big 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 thing is i'm a massive advocate for a a thorough assessment and i do a very thorough assessment so my assessment takes at least two sessions um two hour long sessions um sometimes more um depending on the complexity of the the issue but i also start out with a a quite extensive questionnaire and in that questionnaire I want to know your medical history so I want to know how many sets of antibiotics you had as a kid did you have any pets were there any illnesses were any hospitalizations um I'll ask about things like anxiety and depression I'll ask about your relationship with food um I like to have a sense of what someone's kind of eating style is um because that can give a hint about potential nutritional deficiencies um so all of the kind of physical stuff and then when we meet i will do the kind of standard psychological assessment so i want to know do you enjoy your work what your relationships are like was school fun for you uh what was growing up like for you what are your fears how do you view the world all of that and then i put that together um, and then I present my my clients with a formulation. So I will kind of sit down and say, here is your issue as I see it. Here are what the physiological possibilities might be that are affecting you. Here are the psychological components that I think are playing into this. So maybe you ruminate or maybe there are ways in which you self-sabotage and that kind of plays into the system as well. And here are the potential ways that I would want to work with you with it. And at that point, the person says, okay, I, either great, let's get started or <laughs> mm, <laughs> maybe mm. I'll think about it or I'm not ready or whatever. But it's at that point where we have a negotiation about how we go forward. Because the other thing about therapy is that it really needs to be, a, a the person needs to be ready is the first thing. Yeah. Um, but also it needs to be a good match like they they need to feel safe they need to feel comfortable and um i think people really need to take time to make sure that they have that and um to not feel under pressure to go with the first therapist that they they meet or something like that yeah yeah that's interesting that you say that because i've when you look at studies into different types of therapy often the the most important factor is how well you get on with your therapist and that relationship yeah. so so for people who are thinking about finding a therapist go meet a few people first or you know have some conversations and yeah as you said don't you don't need to go with the first person that you you meet or yeah. talk to that's so true um okay so going back to um the depression i saw that you wrote a really interesting blog post about inflammation and mm. i i've written about this before and kind of looked into this and it's something that often people have no idea about or even what inflammation is or why it would have an impact, but why might inflammation have an, an impact on our, our mental state? Um, 
so we think that inflammation might be the underlying mechanism behind all of these things or at least one of them um and inflammation i like to think of it as um your innate immune system is like um policemen who just are just walking around the streets just making sure everything's okay and everything's fine um and they're ready if they see something and so if a virus or you you scratch yourself or you you know you've caught a bug you know that that's the crime scene and they see that then they can call in recruits deal with the issue and then once the issue's dealt with you know the the backup goes back to the station and it, it just everything goes back down to this kind of observational level and that's perfect that's what we want that's we want a nice healthy response that ramps up when there's something wrong and then dials back down when when there's no pathogen to fight um but there are certain things that people do in their daily lives uh, certain lifestyle habits that can make it seem it's almost like you've got a high terror alert and so there are extra policemen walking around very anxious not sure what they're doing um and when that happens you're, you're kind of in the state of what's called chronic inflammation and the body can start the immune system can start interfering with healthy tissues and healthy processes in the body and that includes in the brain so um kind of neuroinflammation is one of the kind of most prominent theories of some of the subgroups of depression at the moment um and it seems to explain a lot of the relationships between kind of lifestyle factors or life experiences and depression so things like uh childhood adversity child abuse we know that children who have been abused have a have higher uh inflammation and they are also much more likely to become depressed um poor diet increases your your chronic inflammation and is a risk factor for depression um experiences of racism increase your levels of inflammation the markers of inflammation in your blood and increase your risk of depression. So we think inflammation is this kind of unifying mechanism behind uh depressive experiences. Um and that's why for some people having an anti-inflammatory or a non-pro-inflammatory diet might help. It's not going to solve all the problems. Um but it might help to kind of dial it down a little bit for some people. Okay, so stress could cause the inflammation whether that's so if someone is they've experienced child child abuse would that inflammation last until adulthood or is that just looking at children then no it, it we think it lasts yeah um and it also it, it almost kind of changes the, the threshold for stress so it's almost as if when you've had an experience of adversity in childhood and and often a kind of adversity that overwhelms the child's capacity to manage it um it's almost as if the threshold for that distress drops a little bit and so it takes much less to push that child or physiologically into a state of inflammation or stress or distress um so and that seems they call it a biological scar it seems to be present there all of the time actually and, and definitely into into late adolescence and into mid adulthood wow okay and mm. When you talk about a poor diet creating that inflammation, 
are there certain foods that that do that or is it not that simple is it kind of like yes sugar is the enemy and we should right. be avoiding it <laughs> Um, like I'm a big fan of cakes. So I'm not the person to yeah. say never to eat sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, so in the Smiles trial, for example, people were um, allowed to eat what they called extra foods. So sweet foods, fried foods, you know, fun foods, um, three times a week. So basically every other day. And they still saw these kind of positive results. So that's what I mean when I say you don't have to completely eliminate these foods from your diet. Okay, good um, news, good news. Yeah, and there was a thing last year about the anti-anxiety diet, which I kind of commented on in an article, and it's 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 not that. It's we're we're talking about your overall dietary pattern, not the odd food. Yeah. Um, so you can certainly enjoy all of those sweet things as long as you're getting you know sufficient fiber, sufficient vegetables, sufficient sleep, omega threes. Like your body will be able to manage it but it's talking about the kind of overall balance. Yeah, yeah, that's very reassuring and sensible sounding and we don't want to be cutting lots of things out if we don't have to. Um, so you mentioned omega-3, is that, would you say someone should take a supplement or is that just about eating oily fish or what would you suggest? So um, I, I, personally, I take a supplement, um, but I think... Also, I spend a lot of time reading all these articles and maybe I've kind of scared myself into supplementation. Um, most of the evidence suggests that if you take about a gram of omega-3s daily, that's associated with the best, um, the most protection from things like Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I guess that's probably the thing that scares me most. I think relying so much as I do on my brain and, and thinking so much about brains and mental health and it being my work I guess it's the thing that I, that really concerns me yeah um I also try to eat a lot of oily fish so a couple of times a week um so I don't know I think if people feel like they're getting you know they're two servings a week um of oily fish so the NHS says two servings of fish a week one of which should be oily I would say probably try to aim for two servings of oily fish um the maybe not um but as a kind of precaution i don't think there's any real harm as long as you're not taking ridiculous doses as long as you're not on kind of uh, blood thinning blood thinning medication there shouldn't really be any real risk yeah yeah okay and for people that don't eat fish can they have other vegan sources or vegetarian sources or is it not quite the same it's not quite the same. So the thing with omega-3s um, is that they, they come in three forms. So there's ALA, DHA, and EPA. And so DHA and EPA are the ones that we think are most beneficial for the brain, and they form the structure of the cell membrane. So it lit it's literally the outside of the cell is made up with these fats. Um, and they're found in fish and fish roe, so caviar and um, roe products. Um, the ALA is found in things like walnuts and flax seeds, but your body then needs to convert it, and it's just not very efficient at converting it. So it converts somewhere between eight and 11%, and women can do it a bit better than men. So it's just not that reliable a source. So for vegans, I would 
probably recommend uh, an algae-based supplement. So um, the algae kind of synthesize the, I mean, that's where the fish get it. They get it from, the, the fish eat the algae and they concentrate all the omega-3 in their bodies and then we eat the fish. So if you're going straight to the algae source, then you kind of cut out the middleman. <laughs> um, take an, an algae-based supplement. Okay, that's good. That's good news because I'm a vegetarian as well. I, I'm a bit inconsistent with my omega-3s, but I am inspired now to maybe get some more algae get some more algae um, <laughs> amigas in my life. So that's good. One more thing diet related I wanted to ask mm. you, um, because obviously it's winter here in the UK and in the winter we don't get a lot of sunlight and there's a lot, we hear things in the media and things about how important vitamin D is. Does vitamin D play a role in our mental health? Is it important for that, would you say? Um, we think so. So, um... Vitamin D is a tricky one just because sometimes the research can be a bit inconsistent um, and sometimes that's that's just about how the research has been done. So whether you've checked someone's levels at baseline before you've given them the supplement or whether people have come in with decent levels anyway, so supplementation isn't going to make any difference. Um, so possibly, and we think if there is a role, then it's possibly in depression and possibly in Alzheimer's disease, um, as well as the other stuff that it does in terms of immune function. So one of the things it does do is to help regulate immune function. So perhaps there, if it's helping to deal with inflammation, that could be one of the ways that it works. Um, but that said, um, the NHS recommends a vitamin D supplement to all adults during the winter. Um, and particularly if you have dark skin, we're not making it from the sunshine, certainly not making it from the sunshine in the UK. Yeah. So I need to take us a vitamin D supplement as well. Yeah. Okay, good. I've been taking a, a, a vitamin D spray and over Christmas, everyone around me was getting colds and flu and I was just there with my vitamin D spray <laughs> trying to take loads, trying to... <laughs> <laughs> hoping that it would somehow protect me and I haven't had a cold yet but I can slightly feel one brewing actually but hopefully I'll be all right but I don't know if the vitamin D made any difference but it's worth worth doing and if the NHS says it's good advice and you say it's good advice then I think it's worth a try. It's like a, um, no, the, one of the interesting things that I'm interested um, looking forward to hearing about vitamin D is its role in Alzheimer's disease because it's possible that one of the things it might do is to help clear out some of the uh, kind of tangled proteins that are one of the features of Alzheimer's disease so um, I'll be keeping an eye out for that sort of research as well okay okay so we need vitamin d and maybe just more holidays more holidays in the sun much more sunshine much less stress <laughs> um I was just curious just on a on a personal level maybe on a on professional mm -hmm. level what what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given um I feel like people don't really give me advice. <laughs> um, uh, let me think. I don't know. I feel. I feel like one of the things that's increasingly important is, um, and and one of the pieces of advice I don't think I've necessarily been given, but I really like is to don't believe everything you think, um, and. I think that's because one of the things about psychology is that we're, we have our own blind spots and we can be very well informed about a whole bunch of stuff and then just not really have that much insight into ourselves. 
Um, and to think that we're unbiased and to think that we're thinking rationally and thinking that we're, you know, responding to the events as they're happening. But actually, we don't know what kind of unconscious mechanisms are at play in our own minds. So, but I think because it's so subjective, people often, and certainly one of the things that happens in therapy is that people get convinced by their own beliefs. So if they say, I'm worthless or I'm useless, or I'm not good at anything, because it's a thought that's come out of their own minds, they believe it. Um, and so, and, and then the job is to be like, okay, well, let's have a look at the evidence or what's happening there. Let's see if we can confront this idea because I think just because it's a belief that's come out of your own head doesn't make it a fact. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff that's happening at the moment in terms of, you know, like political arguments and, you know, all of the aggression and hostility you see between the right and the left is because people are so entrenched in their own beliefs that they're unwilling to see that there might be some flaws in their own reasoning um so i think don't yeah don't leave everything you think and to hold your ideas lightly like be willing to be wrong be willing to make a mistake and have that pointed out to you without getting too defensive and that will that will just help all of us yeah <laughs> That's such a good one, isn't it? That's so key because I think particularly in depression and anxiety, the thoughts that we have can just be so scary and they come with a big emotional weight and, you know, we, all our history on top of that. And it can, if we believe that, we can get quite dark and down and yeah. just to question that and know that we're not always right as well. I was have this, um, my, my partner is um, a coach so we sometimes get into these discussions where we have to coach each other out of our point of view in our relationship and have these kind of weird coaching relationship conversations where we both have to basically admit that we're not always right. So <laughs> just from my perspective, that's a good thing for me to remember as well. Definitely. I'm also curious, is, is there anything that you yourself are struggling with at the moment and what are you doing to, to sort of overcome that or manage that? I think, <laughs> I think my like my biggest personal struggle is is probably with discipline. Um, so I I get very excited about things, um, and when I get very excited about things, I kind of want to launch into them and do them straight away and 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 right now. Um, and sometimes that's really good because it you, that's how you get projects started, and that's how you kind of. I think that's where I have some of my best ideas is that I just get a bit overexcited about this thing and I end up going down a rabbit hole and I found all these links and these ideas. Um, but it can, it can mean that I'm not paying enough attention to details, I think. Mm. Um, and partly that's a personality thing. So, um, so we, there's a scale of conscientiousness and some people are incredibly conscientious. The, kind of dot the T's, dot the I's, <laughs> cross the T's, <laughs> which probably says everything. Um, and and at the other end of conscientiousness um, are, are people who are much more about big ideas. And I think I'm, I kind of lean more towards that, but I think I need to try to get myself back towards being slightly more focused on the details. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, just to, to notice ourselves and notice 
how a certain aspect of us can be a real gift in some areas and to really kind of acknowledge that but also mm. to recognize where it holds us back and and how we can change that it's just interesting because yeah. we all we all we all struggle with something don't we no one yeah. is perfect no one is just sailing through life with no issues maybe some people are maybe the dalai lama or something <laughs> I, I imagine he doesn't have any time. issues <laughs> yeah, but i mean that's, that's true because it's that's often that happens in relationships too like the thing that you love most about your partner is often also related to the thing that drives you crazy about them like oh i love that they're so laid back about things but oh my God, they never do the dishes. Like there's this kind of, it all sits in the same spectrum. And so that's such a common thing. Like I love that they stand up for themselves, but my God, they can be so argumentative. Is this way in which the same dynamic, depending yeah. on the context and how intense it is, can so be good or problematic. So, so true. Thank you for that insight. Um, <laughs> so just for people that want to learn more about you and what you're up to and how they can work with you, can you tell us how people can find you. Yep, so um, my clinic, uh, if people wanted to work with me that way, um, is monumentalhealth.co.uk. So you can contact me, there's a contact page there if you're thinking about looking for therapy. Um, in terms of the kind of lifestyle, whole body mental health stuff, I think um, my website, my, my kind of non-clinical website is kimberlywilson.co but pretty much everything happens on Instagram. So, so um, where I'm at Food and Psych, so it's F-O-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H. So that's pretty much where most of the stuff happens. Amazing, amazing. And are you working on any particular projects at the moment or? Any... Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'm waiting for, something might go out today. So I want to do a lot more live events. So I'm working on one regular live event, which hopefully I'll be able to announce today or tomorrow in fact by the time this comes out hopefully i'll be able to announce it so i'm Great. i'm doing a regular book club um called thinking space so uh, we're going to look at the psychological themes of a whole bu different bunch of books over wine have chats maybe the odd occasional special guest um it's going to be in uh, mortimer house which is a lovely private members club in london so um that should be I'm really looking forward to that I'm very excited about that and then I'm working on another project hopefully I'll get out for June and other than that it's it's most of the podcast and kind of sharing info there brilliant brilliant and I'll post all the links to that in the notes below this episode so everyone can find you and hear all that there's exciting things going on um thank you so much for talking to me I am sure. just blown away by all the information and it's really really <laughs> helpful so thank you so much my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.